Lord Jesus Christ, may we believe the scriptures. May we believe the words that you have spoken. In your name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So imagine you're back in school, and it's finals week. You know, everyone, all the students' nerves are on end. Same with the teachers, you know, everyone's just kind of kind of miserable a little bit, you know, ready, ready to go, wants the testing to be finished, ready to get through the final exams uh, so that they can all be released for summer adventures. But then all of a sudden, the back door of the classroom is kicked open, and in walks Helena Hesse Moline, and she's mad. She's very mad. She marches straight up to the teacher's desk. She looks at the stacks of exams. She sees the teacher's laptop there. She sees a, a, an apple on the desk that some goody two-shoes had, had put on there. And all of a sudden, she just flips the whole desk upside down. Papers are flying everywhere. The computer crashes. Pencils are rolling down the classroom. And then whipping around, she points at all the students, she points at the teachers, and she says, all of this is a fat scam. She says, all of you need to be ashamed of yourselves. And then, of course, a teacher looks at her and says, what has gotten into you? Who do you think you are? To which she would reply, you can fail me if you want. You can give me a detention if you want. Shoot, you can, even, you can even kick me out and you can suspend me for all I care. But just you wait. I'm going to college. I'm going to law school. And I'm becoming the best lawyer in this whole country. And one day I'm coming back here. And I'm shutting this whole thing down. All of you are finished. And then before anyone could do a single thing, she and her posse of friends jump through the window and run away. Never see ever again. That's right, that's right. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say that if any of us witnessed something like that, we would never forget it for as long as we lived. And I, I love allegorical uh, stories like that, but they're, they're not a total match one for one for what Jesus did 2,000 years ago in the temple. And I do have to admit, I, I'm riffing off of an illustration that I read in one of N.T. Wright's books. I just, I couldn't help it. I was like, oh, that's so perfect for our congregation. And I did ask Helena for permission uh, before the service uh, to use her as an example. But I do think that this pretend story captures well uh, the tension that people would have been feeling 2,000 years ago there in uh, the temple. You know, on one hand, there's this sense of outrage and, and scandal and, and wondering, like, what in the world is going on? But then also there's this paralyzing sense of awe and wonder and even a, a subtle sense of, man, this is right. Like, this does need to happen right now. This feels good in some sort of way. So kids, if you're here and you've got your, your worship journals with you or find a blank page in your bulletin, if you're at home on the live stream, you've got a piece of paper at hand, you can draw uh, Helena overturning a classroom if you want, uh, or you can draw a picture of Jesus flipping over tables in the temple like we read from our gospel passage. Um, I'd love to see those after the service, and I think Helena might want to see those as well. Uh, so anyway, we're in the season of Lent right now. These are the 40 days leading up to the great feast of Easter. And during this season of Lent, we fast. We make space for Jesus. We invite Jesus to come into our house. 
and to examine our soul, to look within us, to find ways in which we've compromised our, our mission to worship him, ways in which we've compromised our love for him. And we ask Jesus to look at those things. And sometimes it can be quite uncomfortable. Sometimes it's extremely uncomfortable, to say the least. And for those of us especially who are older, you know, as we bumble through this life, we pick up a lot of bad habits. We notice destructive behaviors that we have. We, we look within the depths of our soul and we're not always proud at what we see there. We see selfish motivations. We see ensnaring insecurities. We see suffocating addictions and, you know, just things that we, we ask Jesus by uh, his grace to come and remove from our souls. And, and that's part of what Lent does. It's, it's a dedicated ancient season where we ask the Lord, quite hopefully humbly, to look around within the rooms of our souls and ask him what needs to be removed here. So today, like I said, we're looking at Jesus cleansing the temple, and I'm sure that it was rather uncomfortable for those who were there uh, watching that event, you know, not knowing what in the world is going to happen, especially, I think, for the Jewish leaders, because not too far from the temple was a Roman garrison of soldiers. And if things got too crazy, too out of hand, well, they would have come and shut the whole thing down, which if you're a, a historian of, of first century Palestine, you know that that's actually happened several times. So as they're watching Jesus doing this stuff, they're probably wondering what is going to happen right now. But also, like I said, I'm sure that there were some there that morning saying, oh, this actually feels good. This actually needs to happen. I actually want my temple back to the way in which the Lord intended it. So let's turn to our passage today, if you haven't already. In verse 12, we hear that, that Jesus, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, they had gone down to Capernaum, and then after a couple of days, they then go up to Jerusalem. They go to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, going to the temple for Passover is not like our weekly attendance at church. Uh, this isn't like uh, going to um, the corner church or whatever just every single week. Now, every town has a Jewish synagogue. That's where the, the, the Torah would be read and explained and taught. People would worship the Lord in their towns at synagogue. But once a year, all the Jewish people were encouraged to come to the temple. They would travel for days or weeks on end. They would travel from hundreds of miles away in order to attend this great feast Passover. And the temple was the center of the Jewish world. And, and Passover was that pinnacle event. You know, it's like our, I mean, it is like our Easter. It's on the same day. There's a reason for that. But also the temple is a place of hope. It's a reminder that God's hand has been very present in the formation of the Jewish people, of their nation. The temple itself reminds every Jew that we had come from being a nation of, of former slaves a nation of wandering in the wilderness, to this, to this glorious and impressive large structure. And then this is the place where God's glory comes and dwells. We encounter him here. His holiness can be smelled throughout the place. He is there. But also, not only is this a place of hope, this is a place where spiritual work happens. The people would come and bring their offerings. They would receive forgiveness declared over them by the priests. This is a place where sin is dealt with, where people receive forgiveness. It's also a place where those in need, the poor, the widows, the sick, and the lame, they would come here for, 
for healing. They would come here for um, things to be given to them, for them to be provided for, for them to be taken care of. All of that happened here at the temple. But also, as we've said, this is the place where the Jews would celebrate the feast of the Passover. So the Passover feast, that commemorates when the Jews were still enslaved by the Egyptian people, and, they, and God had sent these plagues after plagues upon the Egyptians, culminating in the final plague in which the angel of death was sent by God and took the firstborn from every household throughout Egypt, except for those, Jew, those Jews who covered their doorpost with the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb caused the angel of death to pass over those households, to spare them. And, and you know the story. The result of this is that Pharaoh, now in fear, true fear of Yahweh, finally releases the Jews and they escape forever the land of slavery. And so this is the temple, a place that instills hope, a place that instills justice, that restores justice, a place that reminds the people that God saves. And so Jesus then comes and visits the temple. And what does he see when he gets there? Well, Jonathan, uh, Pastor Jonathan last week who preached, actually alluded to this as well. Where the courts of the Gentiles were, space that was reserved for them to come and to worship the Lord, instead now is full with merchants. Uh, booths are set up, and there's money changing that's happening. There's animals that are being sold. And it brings to mind a verse from the prophet Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 3. Then suddenly, the Lord, who you are seeking, he will come to his temple, the prophet says. And he will purify the Levites. And he will refine them like gold and silver. And so truly, we see this fulfilled. We see the Lord come into his temple. We see him construct a whip out of cords. And he starts driving the animals out. He starts flipping over tables and we're supposed to be scandalized by this. Like, this is crazy. Everyone there is asking, what in the world is going on here? Why is this rabbi, why is this teacher so upset, so mad here? And even for us, it's a little jarring. We think to ourselves, you know, what happened to Jesus, who, this meek and mild Jesus, who says things like, the meek will inherit the earth. Uh, elsewhere, he says things like, let the little children come to me. Like, I hear about Jesus flipping over tables, and I'm like, get the children out of here. You know, this is a scary moment right now. And then Jesus says out, do not make my father's house into a house of trade. And I just love that phrase, my father's house. There is a love that's being expressed there. We're getting a, a glimpse into Jesus' special relationship with God. This is my father's house. He and his father are so in love that there's, a, there's an injustice that's felt there. There's a betrayal that's being felt there. And Jesus himself feels it. So a couple of days ago, our family went and visited uh, a, another family who's started recently attending restoration through the live stream, uh, and they invited us over. It was awesome. Uh, it, was, it was good to hang out and see their beautiful family. And one of the things that I loved observing about this family is anytime one of the kids sat next to their dad, and, and they have several kids, and he would, he would put his arm around them, he'd, he'd pull them close, you know, every now and then he'd give them a kiss, a kiss on the forehead, or he'd say things to his kids like, hey, I love you, you know, or he'd ask them to tell a story. You know, it was just so obvious seeing the father's love for the kids uh, in this situation. Uh, now, I'm sure that if I grabbed a black Sharpie while we were there 
and I just started scribbling all over their kitchen or all over their furniture, I bet their dad wouldn't even need to say anything. I bet the kids would feel outraged. And they would say, why are you doing this in my father's house, they would say. They would see the desecration that was happening, and they would feel an offense themselves, right? Well, this is how we see Jesus reacting. Jesus wants the people of God, he wants all of God's children to be able to come into his father's house and experience the love of God. But instead, there is this injustice that's happening. And I'm experiencing an injustice right now because my smartwatch is buzzing and telling me that it's time to begin church. Uh, It still thinks there's one service. Will you take that obnoxious thing? Thank you. This is not a house of <laughs> this is not a house of screens and technology. Get this out of here. Oh, funny. That actually is a good segue into my next point here. What are our modern day temples? What are our modern day magnificent structures? Our modern day places of hope where people seek to receive physical or emotional or spiritual healing. You know, for those of us who live here in Minneapolis, maybe it's the the great mall of America, right? Where you enter there and you pass, you enter into this infinite loop of booth after booth, selling their goods and services, each promising to give you a good life. You know, go and purchase this and it will bring a a bit more uh, healing and wholeness into your life. Or maybe it's the temple of the White House or the temple of the, the courthouse where we hear things spoken over us like, come here for justice and equality and peace And we're like, I'm not sure the way you use that word is what it actually means. You know, we're told things like, you know, come here where all wrongs will be made right. And guess what? We won't have to pay for any of it. You know, there is a temple aspect to that. There are promises that are being said there. Or there's also the temple of the hospital where we're told that our bodies will be made whole. Where finally all pain will be taken away from us. So I ask you, what other temples do you experience in this life? Where do you go to experience the goodness and the beauty and the truth of this world? Maybe it's the concert hall. Maybe it's the temple of the sports stadium. Maybe it's the temple of the university. Maybe it's the temple of the national park. Maybe it's the temple of the all-inclusive resort. I could go on and on and on. There's so many different temples in our world that are vying for our attention, that are vying for our worship and our adoration. Each of these institutions is a temple promising to eliminate suffering, to bring happiness, and trying to promise to you a way to enter into the good life. So you don't have, my point is that you don't have to live in first century uh, Jerusalem to see a temple. All of us will drive by at least a dozen of them on our way home today. Now, are each of these institutions, are they bad? Are they bad? Are they evil in and of themselves? Some of them maybe. You know, we can have some fun debates about that stuff, probably. But is commerce, politics, education, healthcare, leisure, technology, art, are these bad institutions? Of course not. No. No, I don't think so. None of them are, are wrong in and of themselves. Many of you have dedicated your, your careers to the improvement in, uh, of these various things. And in fact, the merchants that Jesus drove out of the temple, the, the services that they were offering were actually very necessary for the temple. You see, the, the pilgrims who were coming, they were coming from really far away places. And surely you wouldn't expect poor pilgrims to 
bring animals all the way to the temple, you know, uh, some of them would probably even get wounded or killed and therefore be disqualified from being an acceptable offering. Also, pilgrims are bringing coins with them that had the images of, of other rulers and other gods on them. And so those coins needed to be exchanged for temple currency so that it would be approved in the temple. So what was Jesus doing? Because those things were necessary, right? Well, the problem is that these systems, these other industries, were in the temple. That's the problem. They weren't outside of the temple. At some point, the merchants asked permission to come in. At some point, the priests allowed it. And at some point, the people began to participate in it. And it just became this community effort, this, this approved, dare I say systemic, approved uh, thing that was going on in that day. And then sure enough, the worship had begun to transform into something transactional, some kind of uh, formality that was happening in their day. And all of them loved this added convenience. You know, man, I can get my currency changed just right here in the Gentile courts. They loved that convenience more than the worship itself. Now, we desperately, I just want to be clear, we desperately need Christians involved in all of these other sectors that I just said. But when these things enter into the house of God, at a minimum, they distract us from worshiping the triune God, who's quite jealous. But at their worst, these things themselves become idols in our own community. These things start making demands upon us. Like an adulterous man whose mistress keeps making more and more demands of his time and his affections and his resources until finally she demands his everything and destroys the entire family. Jesus himself said, you cannot serve two masters. So it's not really hard for us now to imagine churches that have become temples of politics, temples of prosperity and commerce, Temples of whatever the outrage du jour is. Some of us might have experiences in environments like that. And let us not fool ourselves. That is a very real risk and danger of our community as well. We're not somehow um, exempt from those kinds of things. So I love the collect that we read today. The, the collect is that beautiful prayer that happens before the scriptures. Uh, we label it in our bulletin, the prayer for the week. Um, which, by the way, if you get here early in the service, it's a good idea to look at the prayer for the week. Uh, it kind of tips you off as to what the, the theme is for the day. I know some of you take your bulletins home and you, you use that prayer to, to guide your daily prayers throughout the week. So today's collect was actually, it's kind of a riff off of St. Augustine's writings. I love it when he says, Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Therefore, purify our disordered affections. That's what we're talking about today, disordered affections. You see, Augustine taught that, yes, we are creatures of love. That's why God made us, was to be creatures of love, to love God, to love each other, to love all the fun, adventurous, exciting, beautiful things that this creation has to offer us, that God God placed us in a garden. He he wants us to name animals and, and explore this world. But these things need to be kept in their proper order. Our affections need to be ordered properly. Because your Father in heaven, he wants to be your first love. And that's the way that we're designed. 
He wants to be your first love. He doesn't want you coming to worship, uh, checking the Instagram uh, in between songs, you know, exchanging coins or whatever it is. He wants to be your first love. All right, let's return to our passage. So we're in the temple. Jesus just flipped over all the tables and stuff. And then the Jews come to him and they say, who do you think you are? What sort of sign can you show us to prove that you have this authority to do this crazy stuff? Now, it's, it's interesting to me that, that, that they're not necessarily protesting what he did. You know, like I do, I do actually think that there were some people that just felt refreshed by Jesus getting all of this junk out of here. I almost said a different word. Getting all this junk out of here. You know, but they, say, they don't say to him, you shouldn't do this. They say to him, where did this authority come from? And Jesus says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Jesus gives them an answer of death and resurrection. That's his answer for why he cleanses the temple. You see, Jesus himself, he is the true temple. He's the temple. All of Jewish history All of the Old Testament, the rescue from Egypt, the wilderness wanderings, the delivery of the law, the establishment of the kingdom, the building of the temple, all of those things point to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And one could say that all the worship and the beauty and the wisdom, all of that that was on display in the temple is just a shadow, or dare I say, even a sacrament of the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true temple. It is Jesus who we place our hope in. He's the prince of peace. He's the great physician. He's the good shepherd who tenderly tends to our soul. He's the living temple, the resurrected son of God. Jesus is the reality to which the temple itself points. Jesus, or in his death and resurrection, is the reality to which the Passover event points. Jesus is our Passover lamb who is slain before the foundations of the world so that the curse of sin might pass over us. So one of the remarkable and almost scandalous things about Christianity is that oftentimes what's said of Jesus gets applied to his followers, to me and to you. And my skin just always kind of gets goosebumps whenever I think about that. It it, it feels almost like heresy to say that some of the things that are said of Jesus is applied to us. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy And you are that temple. Beloved, you are that temple. So did you know that? Did you know that if you are baptized into Christ, you're incorporated into him. You have been brought into Jesus. And now you are a part of that living temple of God. His spirit is now in you and you are called holy. Wow. That's just incredible. You know, I had a conversation with someone earlier this week. And man, he is going through some rough stuff. And there are temples in his soul that are getting flipped completely upside down right now. 
And it is painful and it is difficult. And it's tempting just to even give up on the whole endeavor. Maybe you can resonate with that. Maybe you've been in an, in an experience like that. Because there's a, there's a part of me that wants to say, oh, Jesus doesn't throw temple or doesn't you know, turn tables upside down in our souls. But that's not true. He does. He wants you to be pure. He wants you to come before the Lord in the fullness of beauty and holiness. He wants you to be able to encounter God. And sometimes that can be painful and uncomfortable, like I said. And so if, if you can resonate with having those experiences, what does it feel like to be free from those? Or maybe the Lord, this, this season of Lent, has brought these things to your attention. Don't you want to be freed from those? Don't you want those obsessions of, of commerce or, or whatever else that might be compromised in your soul? Don't you want those removed? Don't you want to be able to experience God in the openness of his courts? You know, we can smell uh, his beauty, where you can be surrounded by his people and just encounter him face to face. So in our passage, in verse 22, it says, When Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered Jesus cleansing the, te the temple. It came back to their minds. And what did they do? What does it say there in verse 22? It says, And then they believed the scriptures. They believed the word of that Jesus had spoken. So I pray that that might be true for us today. May we believe the words of God that he has been speaking over us today. And sometimes it can feel like, like tables being flipped over. Sometimes the Lord in his grace decides to tend to us like a gentle shepherd, you know, caring for a wounded sheep. We ought to be prepared for both in the course of our Christian lives. But my point is this, he wants you to be whole, friends. He wants you to be transformed more into his likeness. He wants you to be filled with his Holy Spirit. He wants you to bask in the beauty and the goodness of God. So put your trust in him. Put your trust in Jesus Christ who tenderly cares for our souls. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we know that you, you came to this world to deliver us from the snares of sickness and darkness and sin. And so, Lord, in your grace, may you deliver us. May you have mercy upon us, Lord. May we believe in you. May we put our trust more so in you. And, Lord, where we are lacking, Lord, may you, may you give us your grace. May you fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might come to rely more upon you. God, we want to encounter you in the fullness of your beauty and goodness. And we pray and ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.